Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something. It's uh, very interesting about my guest today. She gave uh, me a book because she just wrote a book and her manager sent it to me. And I knew this would happen because the lovely Joanne's in the studio. And I told her, I said, oh, I'm I have this book. So I swear to God, I get home from the studio. I walk into the house. I put it down in a little den area. I go into the kitchen to eat lunch. And when I come back out, Joanne's already reading it. She has her little paws all over it. And I knew that would happen. And so finally, I'm like, okay, she can read it. And I wake up at like 5.30 in the morning and I can't get back to sleep. So I go downstairs and I start reading it. And I noticed she had done the fold over, like not the, not the page, but the fold over with the book cover. So now I'm worried, you know, I'm half asleep. I'm going, well, if I drop it, I'm going to lose her page. And it gets worse. I sat there, so you know what? I pulled two business cards off my desk. I put them as bookmarkers. Well, then she gets up and she donates to all this stuff. And she had these little, um, this pet donation bookmarks. And I look at it the other day and there's this little blue bookmark with like this puppy and under it says Steve and I'm like that's not cool and hers is like this uh like this this shepherd which I would say a coyote but it was it was a shepherd and it said Joanne I'm like what is that she goes oh this is much cooler but anyway enough about that the book uh, my guest is that she's an actor a writer a director uh, I guess you write screenplays now the book are you an author is that what it's called I guess it is yeah it's I make not... my husband call me author constantly okay. <laughs> it's Nia Vardalos how you doing Nia? hi great nice to be here now I have a question uh, you, and you mentioned this in your book a lot of times people call you Nina, which to me makes no sense because your name is so easy and so pronounceable. I mean, does that happen a lot? Yes, I think it is because it's a more common name, Nina or Mia. And also, you know, it's uh, it, I, I saddled my own kid with a difficult name. So when you have a name that's not quite common, you have to accept. I just If someone burps in my general direction, I'll be like, yes. Well, see, no, it's just funny because uh, people a lot of times they'll mistake me and call me Copper. And my last name is Cooper. And, Interesting. And I always wonder, it's like, it's such a difference. It's like, you you don't, you must not know how to read because Cooper is so much different than Copper. Yes, it is. It is, yes. So you're from Winnipeg. And we got to talk about that because I always love to find out how, you know, people grow up. Now, you grew up in a very big Greek family. Yeah. But was were you around comedy and acting? I mean, what made you follow this path that we go into? It's so strange because my whole family is funny and I'm the only one who makes a living at it and uh, sketchy at best. I, I don't know what it is that uh, my whole family can tell a story. Everyone incessantly makes fun of each other, but we're not mean. Our whole approach to comedy is always come laugh with me. As a, And so no one really takes themselves too seriously. Like, like even the now I'm going to totally uh, reference my own career, but when I got nominated for an Academy Award, my phone rang constantly with my cousins crank calling me. Okay, <laughs> just being like, "Hey, it's Nick. You're not going to win." Ha ha ha! Click. You know, just funny. It makes you not take yourself too seriously. But did you watch? Did you watch comedy on TV or watch a lot of movies that made you want to sit there and go, "Okay, I really want to do this." Definitely, I saw the meaning of life. Okay, and I thought I had. I, I could if I could have married the screen that was the moment where I felt like I'd met my soulmate that mo- movie from the the erudite humor to the outrageousness of vomit is everything I love about comedy there's no, I, I'm not one of those people that thinks a dick joke is out of reach or don't make poop humor why if it's funny it's okay the only thing I sort I draw the line at is I'm not interested in fat jokes I'm just sort of when if I read a script ah we can do better than that see I'm, I think I'm the same way it's like for comedy I mean I love I love Woody Allen but then I'll turn around and watch like Happy Gilmer by Adam Sandler and just laugh because it's just so 
in your face stupid, but that's what it's supposed to be. I think that's what laughter is about. That's right. That's right. When people review Adam Sandler, who, by the way, is a very good actor. If you've seen him in some of his serious things, he's very, very good. But when people review him and they're just like the knives out... I just want to say, take it easy. Well, he has what, made more people laugh. I know. You know what I hate is, though? He did a, I can't think of the name of the movie, a, a serious drama a few years ago. Punch like 10 love. years ago. Yes. And what bothered me about that was, and it's just, it's not his performance, it's not me being in the audience, that a lot of people are uneducated in the words of comedy. So they would go to the movie, and when he's trying to do a dramatic part, they're laughing because they think it's comedy and I'm like you're so stupid read the review (laughs) I guess that does happen to almost everyone because I've been pretty serious at home you know with my daughter saying listen this is and then we'll both start laughing and that's a that's a difficult thing when you do comedy people rarely take you seriously but it's it's a gift and a burden so you're in you're in Winnipeg and you're Mm -hmm. watching these movies and you sit there and go I want to do this. Yes. And so where do you go? Well, it's difficult because um, we have a lot of theater in Winnipeg. So how do I explain to my Greek parents that I need to leave Winnipeg and go to Toronto or New York to go to theater school? So I auditioned for a professional theater school, the top one in Toronto. They auditioned 3,000 kids and I got in. I was in my, I think 20. And my dad was like, no way, you're not leaving home because in, you know, that's just tantamount to being pregnant with a mohawk to move out of the house before marriage so I said um dad they only accepted 27 students from across Canada and I'm the only Greek (laughs) you gotta appeal to their vanity at all times and he was like what yes yes okay and so it is coincidental that my first movie is an homage to my parents and to them having the absolute audacity to stand up to the Greek community because people whispered behind their backs. How could they allow me to go away to theater school and be an actress? I think my dad and mom kept thinking I would come home. And then when I bought a couch, I remember I was at theater school and I bought a couch and my dad was very upset because that meant I was furnishing. Okay. You know? (laughs) That is, that's a big step. It's like, it's so funny because Joanne, we finally, we rented out her condo back east Uh and it's the same thing. You know, she didn't bring her furniture out here, which that makes it a serious move we were going to rent it furnished, so I always said she's on a 90-day probation, and if it doesn't work, she can go back to a furnished place. That's very nice. But now we have to get rid of the furniture, and that's it makes it real when you give away furniture or when you get furniture. Yeah. It's like, okay, I'm not coming back. Yes, yes, I agree. The first time you choose, when my husband and I got engaged and we chose a china pattern, I really thought, oh, this is it. <laughs> this, is, this is for realsies. So you go to the school, and now you enjoy it. It's it's your calling. No, not a bit. It was a Shakespeare school. I loved performing Shakespeare, but flat out, they started telling me that I was not castable. I was 220 pounds. I had a very curly, curly hair, and I had a lot of confidence and a big, loud musical theater voice. And they kept saying, well, you know, this isn't the school for you. And I couldn't understand why they would do it. Why accept me and then put me through the ringer? But I guess it's sort of a thing of you have to break down someone's confidence to build it back up, which I never agreed with at all. Uh, So I went one night to see Second City. You know, there's a lot of theater in Winnipeg. I grew up on theater. I went to Toronto Theater School. Of course, I'm going to go see theater. So I went to Second City. And that's the moment that I thought, ah, I want to do that. And so it's funny because in the book you talked about when you went to Second City and you were working as the ticket taker, but you would close the office and go watch the show. 
the only thing was because I, when I first read it, I wasn't sure if you were in Chicago at first or Toronto. And when you were saying you kept there was a guy named Mark, I kept thinking it was Mark Beltzman. I don't know if you know Mark. Oh, I love Mark Beltzman. He's great. I kept thinking when you said a, a burlier guy named Mark. That's the first thing I thought. I went, oh my god, it's because me and him did this really awful movie called Killer Drag Queens on Dope, and he played Anthony, I played Tony. We were the sidekicks, but it's, I thought that was him. But it was a different Mark. It's a different Mark. It's a Mark in Toronto. I was um, after I'd left theater school. I was working in the box office at Second City, and I had auditioned quite a few times and didn't even get a call back and someone said you know if you work there you can take the classes for free so there I was you know right in the box office worst box office person ever (laughs) I just you know take the phones off the hook thinking ah they're sold out till March whatever and I'd go in and watch the show Uh, night after night would watch the show and then one night uh, an actress got sick and the stage manager came running into the box office flipped through the oldie timey Rolodex looking for the understudy's phone number and um I said, what's wrong? And she said, this actress is sick and we can't find Alana, the understudy. And I just followed her backstage and I said, I am a member of Actors' Equity and I know your show. I don't know why I did it. To this day, I don't know why I do stuff. But it's amazing is that you... It shows that after you went to the school and you didn't really enjoy it, it made you become a part of Actors' Equity. So it must have been something. You must have just said, you know, it's, it's a go for nothing. It really was. I had done, after I left theater school, I'd done a lot of musical theater for $65 a show. Loved it. Did musical theater. Loved it, loved it, but not exactly the funniest form of entertainment. So when I, again, my goal was to get into Second City, not realizing that that was going to lead me on a conveyor belt to my destiny. Right. Because... When I, okay, so I I went backstage, said I'm a member of Actors' Equity. They called the Chicago producers. Everyone called around. Are we going to put this girl on? Mark came backstage and said, uh, do you know none? Which was the opening scene, two-hander. And I said, yeah. And he started to say the lines, and I just spit the lines back at him. And he, you know, amused. Just, right. you know, we're all just, <laughs> you know, everyone in Second City is just someone who loves to stir the pot. So he mischief- mischievously looked at the stage manager and said, put her on. You know, so they put me on. And I, I the, sh- the show is a blur. I just remember going out for the opening number, doing all the scenes, doing everything. And then after the show, I walked home to my little one bedroom apartment, one room apartment with the couch that I had recently bought. And um, I just sat down and cried. Because sometimes I think that you are more ready to do things than your mind will allow you to admit. And obviously, I knew the show. And then I got to work the next day. I reported for my box office shift. And all the producers were waiting for me, and they hired me. So then they hired you to work in that second city in Toronto. Yes, there's a there are there's a farm team. It would be like Santa Monica to Los Angeles. Okay. So they sent me out to the farm team. I learned how to write. I met my bestest friends and uh, then uh, got hired, worked in the company. Then Chicago came up and scout, scouted me. I did that. I w- met my bestest friends in Chicago. I mean, I just kept going, going, going. But why I say it's conveyor belt to my destiny is that moment when I said I'm a member of Actors' Equity and I know your show. I was hired for Chicago very quickly after that. I met my husband. My husband got baptized Greek Orthodox. I wrote a movie about it. And now here we are. It's amazing. And how are your when all this was going on when you get into Chicago, how did your parents take it? Because one, they're very prideful, as you said. But two, you still are out and away. And now you're definitely not coming back because you're even further. You've gone from Toronto to Chicago. What was their take on it? They were happy about me going to Chicago because I have cousins there. Okay. So they thought I would meet a nice Greek boy through them. 
It's so funny. It's just so funny. The Greeks are so, so tight. Like I had a friend growing up, and he was, his name is Rich Pappas, and I used to love going to his house in high school because we'd go down to his basement and we would drink Metoxa, <laughs> and we would sit there. And, and now looking back, it was nasty. Now is is Uzo a brand of Metoxa or is it the other way? I don't even know. Yeah, Uzo is a different drink. Metoxa okay. is uh, is brown and Uzo is clear. We just would drink them, and <laughs> both of them will make you sleep with a cousin. Okay. <laughs> So you're in Chicago. It's taken off. You meet your husband, Ian. Yeah. And so when do you decide to come to L.A.? Because you're in the second city thing going. Uh-huh. We, um, we got... I got my green card and my citizenship, and we said, well, now I can work other places. Now, did you get that? Because a lot of times I heard it's very hard for... Uh, Canadians to get green cards. Very hard, but Second City sponsored me. Okay. They signed so many papers, and they um, they just really were so kind to me that right afterwards, you know, years later, they would ask me to do a benefit. Sure. Okay. You know, they just, this is Joyce Sloan and Cheryl Sloan and Andrew Alexander. Joyce and Cheryl put so much effort into getting me hired, and I just thought, and, ke- and keeping me there. So, anyway... We were there. Um, I got a Lean Cuisine commercial as soon as I got my green card and could work. Got did, you, did you eat the Lean Cuisine? Oh, yeah. I danced around. By the way, at around that time, I was uh, slowly, oddly losing weight. I didn't, know, I didn't know that my thyroid was just completely out of right. wonk. Uh, so, um, uh, okay, so then my husband and I get married, and uh, we decide to move to Los Angeles. Real quick, what's the process of him converting to Greek Orthodox. Is it a big process or is it a long ceremony? Because I know you say about the baptism and stuff in your book, that's a big ceremony, but what's the process of that? Uh, you know, you, it depends on your priest. If you have a very strict priest, they will have you come and do classes, which in a way, you know what, you do learn and you can make a, a, an informed decision. And then it would be like con- converting to Judaism. You better know what you're doing in either case. And so my husband's case was pretty simple. The priest said, I'm going to help you keep your dignity and then, con- con- you know, proceeded to dunk his head in a vat of water and I I say there's always olive oil involved in all of our ceremonies because somehow everything must tie into the Greek salad. (laughs) I know that's so funny. I don't know why we do that but anyway so it was not too hard on him but it was for me I thought a very selfless act. We moved to Los Angeles. We got here. Ian started working right away. My husband's last name is Gomez. And he was part of just, he was instantly castable. Now, you met him at Second City? I did. I met him at Second City. I'd never dated another actor before because we're all crazy. And we got here, and thank God he started working because we were not doing well financially. We would have yard sales and just, you know, sell some stuff. Sometimes I'd go to other yard sales, buy stuff to resell. <laughs> <laughs> I know someone who does that on eBay. They buy something, and then they just resell it for a lot more. They go to the 99 cent store and they find out like, let's say there was like some kind of kids underwear that you can't find in other parts of the the States. They buy them for 99 cents. They sell them for like six bucks and people love to buy that. (laughs) Now, where did you first move to LA? I mean, how did you choose where you were going to live? We decided to move centrally. I was doing a lot of voiceover at the time, so I was all over the city. So we moved to Hollywood. We lived on Hillside. And a second after we signed the lease, Ian went, Hillside, as in Strangler. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, why? Why would you do that? (laughs) And then he started working on uh, Murphy Brown. He got a secretary. He was working on Married with Children, you know, a couple of jobs that pay well. You get about, at the time, he was getting about $1,800. And, uh, you know, two or three of those a year, we were doing okay. We could keep it together with my voiceover money. And then um, we realized that I was just not getting work at all. I mean, I was not even getting auditions. Well, it's funny you say about your agent with the, the pictures, which is so true. Because, I mean, and that now it's there's not pictures anymore, really. But it must be, that must be such a 
pissed off feeling when you go in to get your pictures and like only there's like 90 left when yeah. she's like, oh, I'm sending them out. So w- what was the reason why you weren't getting the auditions? She said that I was, again, not castable. You know, you hear that a lot and it's not like it's only been said to me. Everyone hears that. You know, Jeremy Renner, would you look at him and go, ah, I know just the part for you. Nobody's castable. Right. We're supposed to be unique and create material and have good agents that match you to it. But anyway, she said, the problem is that you're not pretty enough to be a leading lady and you're not fat enough to be a character actress. <laughs> What's funny, because you said that too about it's the the you're not fat enough to be a character actress, and you said back when in your Second City days that gen- the guys they want you to be fat and yeah. funny, and it's just it, to me it just it cracks me up because it's like funny is funny it doesn't make a difference you know if you're small I mean little kids make you laugh and you're saying like your book your daughter makes you laugh but it's just so funny how people pigeonhole certain different groups like you can't be a leading lady you're not fat enough and it's just it's really it's like you want to sit there and go why are you even doing this to put it to the agent well I think that they have a frustration I think I think they have a very difficult job and they have a frustration and when pressed if you ask somebody why are you breaking up with me why are you breaking up with me at some point they're going to tell you something that might not exactly be the real thing and so anyway she said that and it was her opinion and uh, I, I drove home and uh, I remember doing that. I say in the in the book, I had a cra- doing that crazy laugh in the car. You know, the conversation, the woulda, shoulda, coulda, where you're so articulate. Right. A ten minute, ten minutes later, <laughs> um, and then I got home and my friend, my friend Carrie, told me. Now she's a slim, pretty blonde. Told me that she had been dumped by her agent that day. My agent said, "I can't get you work because you don't look like anyone in the city." Her agent said to her, "I can't get you work because you look like everyone else in the city." So I thought. You can't take anyone's opinion right. of you. You just can't. If you're waiting for someone to give you permission to work, go back. Go exactly. back to where, you know, it's not you. How do you know? You know. You just know. If you truly think you have a story to tell, tell it. So I thought, I'm going to write a movie and I'm going to play one of the bridesmaids. If the problem is I'm not, there are no Greek parts, I'll write a bunch of them. Right. It's, yeah, it's so funny because they pigeonhole Greeks and stuff like that. Like I had a guest who was a... Uh, He's been in a bunch of commercials. His name's Ken Lerner. He's been acting forever. Mm-hmm. He was one of the Malachi brothers in Happy Days. Which yes. Like, but he said when he came out here, there was no Italian actors. They started casting Jewish actors. And then he said all of a sudden, all the Italian actors go, well, wait a second, all these Jewish guys are getting cast as us. So all the Italian actors started coming out from New York. It's just weird. There's always a type, but the people are just afraid to take a chance on it. Exactly, exactly. Even with the Hispanic wave, for years and years and years, there were three Hispanic roles on television and they're maids. And not to disparage the profession, but there are other things that Hispanic people do in the fabric of our society. Can we not write a role for them that is something else? So every ethnicity has a frustration in this city. So there was no Greeks, so you said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to sit there. Because, I mean, you think about of Greek actors, and they I mean, the one that pops in my head is Michael Constantine. Uh-huh, and Olympia and, Dukakis. Yeah, but then you're right. In Now there's more coming up, but there wasn't a lot of Greeks, or I think sometimes they may have changed their names just because... Once again, if you can't get cast with a certain name, I mean, I'm lucky my name is Cooper. It can be Jewish, it can be English, it can be African-American. I have a very easy last name. But I think a lot of them may have changed it. So you were one of the groundbreakers for the Greek society. Well, I think, well, I think Olympia Dukakis, for me, you know, you always have that person who inspires you in some way. So when I saw Olympia Dukakis accept her Academy Award, I remember thinking, come on. And Andrea Martin, who I'd grown up watching. Andrea Martin's not Greek, but I mean, a person who is not necessarily a slim, pretty blonde. And, you know, I'm friends with slim, pretty blondes. I have, I really rail against that we are more than our bodies. I don't like saying skinny's out, fat is in, whatever. I'm just tired of 
part of this whole focus on our bodies. And I think it comes from when I was at Second City and growing up. You could play whatever you wanted. I could be whatever I wanted. There was no, there wasn't a focus in my family on who was the pretty one. Everybody was just funny, as I said. At Second City, if I wanted to play Native American, I would just part my hair in the middle and walk out on stage. So what was it about Los Angeles that they were trying to pigeonhole me? It was a uh, a badge I wouldn't accept. That uh, what am I now? What, am I character? Am I leading lady? Who cares? Right. So at the time, I sat down. I made a list of every story I'd been telling at parties, making fun of my family for years. Um, Aunt Vula's lump, true story, wrote in a, on a list. Uh, my dad used Windex. Uh, what, what, what? I just got married. Ian got baptized. And then I borrowed a friend's computer. He had the screen, screenwriting program, Final Draft. Okay. And I sat down. I'd been, I'd had a couple of bit parts in movies, so I'd seen the format of a mo- movie script. I found it in the Final Draft program on his computer, and I wrote the first draft for my Big Fat Creek Wedding in three weeks. Now, was that the title you were giving it? I did, because a friend said, what are you going to call it? And I went, I don't don't know, my big fat Greek wedding. It's funny, because in the book, you say how you're not connected to any of the franchises. And there was a, because I live in Burbank, there was just a restaurant that opened at the mall called My Big Fat Greek Restaurant, but it closed after just a few months. Karma. Exactly. I'm like, because once you you hear that, you think, you know, and you should be getting a little cha-ching for that, because, I mean, you, you know, that's... I, it's amazing how they're they're sent season to cis letters. They're sent. Uh, there's there are people who persist, and I just think in the end it'll come back. It's fine. You know, we have. Uh, when I say we, I mean Tom Hanks, Rita Wilson, Playtone, HBO. We have maintained the title, and but you can't copyright a title. Right. That's the truth. We <clears throat> should have branded it, and we didn't because we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't yeah. know when I said my big fat Greek wedding to make someone laugh. I didn't know um, what was going to happen. So. Um, I couldn't get the screenplay read uh, by anyone. I didn't have any connections to the industry. I didn't have an agent at that time. My managers wouldn't read it. They read it after a couple of months and just really didn't think it was interesting. And I continued to work on that first draft that I had sent off to the Library of Congress to copyright. I, I worked on it for over a year. Just and now Ian's working at this time, though. So things you're staying, you guys are staying afloat because he's working and you're... Yeah. And are you still doing voiceovers at the time? I was doing voiceovers for Kraft. I was doing um, Nestle Toll House cookies. If you remember, there was a cookie and a finger pressed into it and a cho- the chocolate would ooze. And it was my voice at the end going, Toll House bakes the very best. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I love the retro commercials. When you hear stories of people like, that was my voice. Or you see a commercial. I know uh, Jim Parsons from uh, Big Bang Theory is an old FedEx commercial or a quiz no commercial and I looked it up online because someone said it and you're like oh my god and it just amazes me because everyone gets their start somewhere everyone starts some I always say no one's born famous except for Michael Douglas right everybody else had to just really make a name for themselves other than that you you got you, there's nobody in this city that gets a handout I think you have to work hard anyway so uh I tried to get the screenplay read, couldn't get it read, and thought, I'm going to jump on stage. I'm friends with Jeff Garland. I love his form of comedy. Is it stand-up? Is it storytelling? What is it? Well, that's what I love about it. You can't define it. Julia Sweeney, I love her style. It's storytelling. So <clears throat> I jumped up on stage. I rented a theater. Ian was a regular on the Drew Carey Show. I had voiceovers for, at that point, Craft, Tide, uh, Bud Light in Canada. Bud Light was... Um, guys on a dock fishing quiet idyllic crickets and then you hear my voice just go it's what guys do best <laughs> i love them that's like the old low and brow commercial like tonight is low it's just it's so classic and everyone remembers them like beer commercials are the one thing that everybody remembers yeah and they pay so well so we took all that money at, at that point um 
you know, we were staying afloat financially. We didn't have a lot, and the theater was a lot of money. It was $500 a night. My posters were $500 for a slew of how many, glossy. Um, I had a stage manager. I used my stage manager from Second City, Jim Yotto, hired him again, rented a theater, jumped up on stage, and I just started to tell the stories from the screenplay, just told the, the story of... I, I would just address the audience. I'd say, okay, you know I'm going to tell you about my wedding. Well, let's go back. My dad and I were driving in the car. I'm 20 years old. I'm in the car with my dad. And he turns to me and goes, you know, you better get married soon because you're starting to look old. <laughs> and then I say to the audience, and I was 20, which is how the screenplay starts. So and then, you know, I just took story stories. Little things would happen. Like my mom one day said to me, she was having some sort of tug of war with my dad on the phone. I said, I got to go. I have to go to the theater to do the show. And she, I said, anyway, I'll call you tomorrow and see how it turns out. And she went, Oh, I'm going to win. And I went, oh. And she said, oh, Nia, the man is the head of the house, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any way she wants. <laughs> and I, 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 you know when your body just goes still? And I just drove to the theater, threw it into the show that night. You know, so each thing, things like that would happen. I was taking constantly from the screenplay and honing the screenplay. And then one night, I had placed an ad in the paper because the show was selling out, but I thought maybe I can make a living out of it. So I needed to press, you know, at the at, at the table in Vegas. And I placed an ad in the paper. It was, again, $500 for an L.A. Times ad. And Rita Wilson and Tom Hanks had recently been in New York and seen a lot of theater. And Rita came home and said, I'm going to see some theater in L.A. And she opened the paper, and there was my ad. Isn't that crazy? It's just like so many things are destiny. Like just you decided for that time to take that ad out and thinking, okay, I'm paying a lot of money for a very small ad, which now it's so much easier because there's an internet. So everything's like free. You can post it. And, but you took that chance and just the, the chance that she sat there and that she is also Greek looked at it. And that's probably why she sat there and went, I want to go because of the title. We were starved for things on us. I always say we would sit in movies and wait for the, the credits to go by and the gaff first last name was Apollopoulos and we're like oh you know we we there were just no stories about us so I understand why her her eye went to Greek like mine would as well so she um she came to the show they laughed so hard Rita her mom her sisters that I remember thinking if this story ends here I am happy I remember when Tom Hanks won an award and he said and I know the meaning of the word happiness because I married to a hot Greek babe I remember just being delighted for her I didn't know her and I was just like my Greek sister I've never (laughs) met because I'm a stalker (laughs) and um, she waited for me after the show and the first words she said to me were I love you and then the next thing she said was, this should be a movie. And we always joke that I handed her the screenplay so fast that her hair flew back. <laughs> so that right then, and it's like anything in Hollywood, they say this should be a movie or whatever. You still think, okay, people say this is going to happen. Yes. But, so, but then Tom Hanks came to the next show. Yes, yes. Tom came to the next show with Rita's dad and her brother and their sons and saw the show. And then um, a, a couple of months passed and he was forming his company, Playtone, with Gary Getzman, who had produced That Thing You Do. So they took Playtone from That Thing You Do. 
and uh, that Tom had written and directed. So Tom called and said, now for months, of course, my friends were calling and pretending to be Tom Hanks. Aren't we mean? So anyone in the performer field, I mean, I've heard that's happened a lot of times when we're actually, when the person actually calls, you're like, yeah, whatever, shut <laughs> yeah. up. And it's like, no, this is them. Yeah, I mean, it's, just, it's great, but it's just that cruelty that we yeah. all do and we love. Oh, for months, my friend Brian would call and be like, oh, please hold for Tom Hanks. And I'd go, oh my God. And he'd go, hey, it's Brian, you want to go for lunch? <laughs> so when Tom Hanks finally called, um, it, it was one of those things that I know it sounds incredible that this superstar would pick up the phone and say, you know, Rita and I have read your script and my partner Gary Getzman and I with Rita would like to make this movie. I remember thinking it's going to happen. I didn't. I, I had been through so much in this city, and people were terrible and lied and said terrible things to me. But there is an authenticity in his voice. He is who we want him to be and believe him to be. He is that person. So when he said this will happen, I believed it, and he did make it happen. And so you just must be on cloud nine. Yeah, yeah. It was an incredible feeling. And of course, you know, the, through the negotiations, I remember them saying HBO insisted on a clause that I think is in all their um, business affairs to the cruelest people on earth. Just know it. Don't take it personally. <laughs> when you get your contract negotiated by NBC, Warner Brothers, anybody, just know that they are the p- people who are most likely to have been locked in a locker go on to become business affairs. So these people insisted on having a clause in my contract that said I could be replaced within three days of shooting. And that freaked me out because I kept thinking, oh, oh, so I, I, you know, I'm going to be replaced. It's all. I wouldn't even let Ian have a going away party for me. We flew to Toronto to film the movie, and I was like, just let me just slip out of town. I'll be back in three days. <laughs> and so we're filming the movie, and on day two, I went into the costume trailer and looked for, my character's name is Tula, I looked for Tula's costumes in a size two. You know, I was like, who's coming in? Who's replacing me? You know, I was constantly under duress. I remember the day, day three uh, went by and the next morning, you know, you know uh, how you, on every job, you know how usually the um, the janitorial staff knows who's getting fired before anybody? Right. That's the way it was at Second City. And so I remember walking out in the hotel, looking at everybody like, it's, you know, <laughs> 5.30 in the morning for a movie call. The driver is there with the van to pick up all the actors. And I see his face. It's like, good morning. I was like, he would know. Right. Everyone would know. <laughs> and then I got to the set and it was just business as usual. It was day four and I was filming. And that's the day that we filmed the scene where I'm crying to my parents. And I cried in take after take after take. I think I released six years of anxiety <laughs> of trying to get a job in Hollywood. Just they must have thought, well, that kid can act. No, not so much. Right. I was just uh, having a moment. So you do it and the movie becomes a hit. Mm-hmm. And now you said you were driving, I believe, was after, we'll get into the fertility, that was after you got the Oscar nomination, you were mm-hmm. driving back. What is it like, though, to sit there, I mean, just to think that, you know, you sat there and and I think we all, not that we're vindictive, but when you sit there and think like, oh, this no one could read my script, then you sit there and go, wow, I'm nominated for an Oscar, which is, you know, doesn't get bigger than that. What went through your head? I mean, did you have a little bit of screw this person because <laughs> that happens or were you just like, this is the best thing ever? Oh, I think I'm such a middle child that I wish everyone well. And I, I immediately went to that place of, oh, I hope that people are kinder to oddballs like me. And so it's, but then your whole life changes. I mean, once you're, once you get a hit movie, it goes from, 
you know, you're known in the public, and as you said, they call you Nina, that Greek girl, you know, yeah. but you, your whole life changes. I mean, were you ready for that? I mean, because I mean, every it's not like it's not like it's not like you have a small part of a TV show. You are in a hit movie, and people look at TV shows different than hit movies. You're a movie star, and you're meeting, as you said in the book, you're meeting people that you can't believe you're meeting. Yes, it went for, it went from um, just a regular day to suddenly I'm having dinner with the Queen of England. I I met and hung out with Elton John and the the craziness, Helen Mirren, people I admired, Barbara Streisand, Bette Midler, just, there was, there was, it was endless. It was an endless stream of trying to keep my eyelids propped open so I could absorb it and digest it all. And at the same time, I think what was keeping me incredibly balanced was that I was in the unbelievably tough fight with Mother Nature of trying to become a mother for years. And it was so shame-filled for me, I can't even explain why, that um, I couldn't talk about it. And that, I think, is what kept me balanced. The other thing I would advise, if this ever happens to anybody out there, if you ever get the white-hot, sudden power of instant fame, keep your family the same, keep your friends the same, It'll all even out. Nothing changes. Now, what was it like going to the Oscars, though? I mean, that's like everyone sits there, you think, you know, and even people who don't care about entertainment, they watch it now because there's E with the red carpet. People who could give a crap about Hollywood, they all watch the Oscars. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, you're sitting there, and you're not only going to an Oscars, which would be a great thing to be invited to the Oscars, let's say, you know, in a cast of something, but you're nominated. I mean, what goes through your head? You're like, you know, because you want to, you have to look good because, you know, everyone's going to go, oh, from the red carpet, what was she wearing? What was that? So what yeah. made your choices to pick what you were wearing? Did you talk to your friends and say, I don't want to look like an ass. What <laughs> what should I wear? What should I, I do? I, I remember I had already been through the Golden Globes and the Writers Guild Awards and all the different things and I had made so many mistakes. I just didn't know what to wear or whatever. <laughs> and then, um, the designers, Badgley Mishka, had me in for a fitting. At that point, Dolce Gabbana was sending dresses. Everyone sends you dresses. It's amazing. It's a, it's a really crazy experience. Yeah, is that what they just send you stuff to wear? Now, do you get to keep that stuff? You can keep it. You can donate it to charity. Sometimes they want it back because they're going to donate it themselves, which is fair enough. Um, but often, yes, you get to keep it. I got to keep all my dresses. And you, But you don't wear... I mean, how did you choose which one you wanted to wear? Was it the one I remember? I, I definitely go for comfort, always, always, always. But I did do something that is really—I can't believe I'm going to say it, but I will. I didn't wear underwear <laughs> because there's no line, you know. And I hate tight undergarments, so I thought, well, the only way not to have a line—you know—the girls know what we're talking about. It's that what I call fat back, the bat wings, whatever. <laughs> the only way not to have it is just don't wear a bra and underwear, and then you just feel all night like you're gliding and the you have a little secret so not only the night that I was nominated but that I presented I walked out on stage like doo, 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 no undies now what's with the gift bag I heard these gift bags I heard even if you lose I just saw an article on this. if you lose and you're nominated you get like a $45,000 gift bag yes you get a nom- you get a gift bag if you present or are nominated it's endless gifts it really is incredible yeah that's amazing. It's just you sit there and go, wow. I know like a lot of people, I've known people have written for the Oscars and they basically didn't want the gift baskets anymore because they had to pay the taxes on the gifts. And they're like, we don't, we're not making that much money to pay for, I mean, we'd love to get $60,000 in gifts, but we don't want to pay the tax on 60,000 gifts because we don't have it. I think fair enough. You should pay the taxes on the gifts, but not writers, not fair. Right. Yeah. <laughs> writers are the mo- the unsung heroes of the city. So you sit there, you have the Oscar going on and, now, and then you're trying to have a child. Yeah. Now, are you getting you're getting very frustrated and sad? 
Yeah. So where do you, how do you keep going where you're going to sit there and go, okay, I, I'm really hurting this way, but I need, I'm on a hot streak because right now everything, all the doors are opening up for you. I, I think that's what put it in perspective for me. I was meeting people with real problems. I was reading letters from people who enjoyed my movie, letters from people with real problems. So I couldn't take what I was going through as any sort of tragedy. I just thought, well, that's fair. It's yin yang. You know, this has happened and this is being taken away and I just have to be a big girl and accept it and keep trying. When I finally took the time to stop, take a moment and grieve, it was like that moment in the film where I think I hold things in and when I finally release, I just let it go and I disappeared from, as I call it, I disappeared from polite society. I needed uh, to just not be on camera, not be even doing interviews like this is that you have to be grounded and focused and I know what I'm saying. I couldn't do it. I couldn't even be in a movie or talk about a movie. I just retreated and it was the most healthy thing I could have done because it made me realize to be a mom, you don't have to give birth. I could be a mom by donating. I could be a mom by adopting. It just put it all in perspective for me, and I began to pursue adoption. And that's great that you did that because, I mean, and especially with this book, I'm sure people will get to know the whole adoption process. Like we were talking about the different, you know, the the children. There's a lot of them are emancipated. They're, you don't because people don't know that because yeah. I think. And you said you went you went through trying to get on a waiting list and different stuff where you have to. And unfortunately, what sucks is there are scam artists out there. Yes, and there you are. said, and that's just it's so to me that stuff that just gets me so pissed and gets me sad. It's like when you see like a 2020 or a Dateline story and you go, yeah. how can someone be such a jerk that they would do that to someone who is wanting and would be a great parent yes because the, the, you know there was heartlessness after newton the horrible massacre of these children last christmas there were scam artists out there there are people who have not been raised with love and we have to accept that and forgive them and be wary and that's what i have to, had to do with the world of adoption it is so unregulated that that's why the back of this book is 25 pages of how to adopt from all over the world because if someone is listening to this and saying hey i don't want to be a parent great the book isn't really about parenting you know that it is about do what's right for you if you feel a calling to india you might want to go there and adopt a child. Well, I'm going to show you in the back of the book how to do it. You also might just want to go there and volunteer. Right. So it's great. So you went through the process, and then all of a sudden, you know, you get your daughter. We get a call. And yeah. all of a sudden, then you said it's it's very, it must be very nerve-wracking because, as you said in the book, it says, you know, no manual. Because you know, people don't know what, I mean, I, I don't know what a parent would do. I mean, I, was my, I had great parents. I'm thankful for that. But... When a kid, you know, it's like you said, you know, there are two diapers showed up in toy bag. It's like, how many diapers do we get? Stuff like that. Yeah. How nervous were you? I remember thinking, I'm not equipped. I remember blaming myself, thinking, this is why Mother Nature didn't give me a child, because I'm not maternal. You just absolutely, the, the, the worst things you can possibly say to yourself, you'll say. I always say, call it diet brain. When women always will say, you know, we'll be shopping and you'll hear somebody say, did you hear what she said to me? And I always think nothing's worse than what we've ever said to ourselves when we're on a diet. Don't eat that fatso, right? Well, it's so funny. Yeah. And it's just, it's the, I mean, I, I have to go on a diet now because she's, Joanne said, I put on a few extra Christmas pounds and she's like, you got, it's not good for your health. And it's weird though. You sit there and you do and you feel guilty. I mean, it's like you've dieted before, Joanne, you've dieted before. It, it's just, it's so funny that we feel guilty and it's like, well, wait a second. So what? We're eating this, you know, 
piece yeah. of cake. It's yeah. like we're allowed to do that because yeah. we're adults. I actually, I, I, you know, I in my life have lost 90 pounds. Have You know, I found out I have a thyroid thing and take, you know, the medication. I still have to work hard. But honestly, I don't have a punitive relationship with food. I will just say, ugh, I got to take it easy for a couple of months. But I don't get mad at myself for eating cheesecake. Because what if you get hit by a bus that day? That's going to be the worst thing to be mad at yourself because you ate cheesecake. I know. As your brain is <laughs> dripping out your ear. <laughs> so so you have your daughter in the house and so you have to change your life a lot yes now so what is that like because and I know you've been on the movie sets and you've been you know writing and stuff like that and you know you write and that's writing you pretty much write on your own cycle most but, of the time right? yes I mean unless you have a deadline movies you're in a shoot but you know at one point it's going to end yeah so all of a sudden you're sitting there and you're a working part you work a lot your husband works a lot mm-hmm. so you both have this weird lifestyle we always say that's why there's so much traffic in LA because people work all different hours it's not like back east where I grew up it's like okay five o'clock nine to five here you you know you could be on the set till 11 at night you yeah. could go on the set at four in the morning yeah so were you I mean you were so glad to finally get a child but it just must have been an upheaval because your whole life changes because now it's you besides what you do you have a 24-hour job yes and the thing that i should point out is my daughter when we met was not an infant our daughter was almost three years old she was living in a loving home in in the american foster care system we met and uh, and why the book is called instant mom is because i had 14 hours notice and then suddenly this toddler walked walked in our door and looked at me well, now you said the fourteen-hour notice. That's because there was some process that they could call you at the last. It's like it's almost like being on call for like an uh, for an, your yeah. avails for an audition. Yes, you you say that you say you check boxes and say what you are willing to take into your life. And because we were so at that point, we'd been through the ringer. We were desperate to be parents. I checked any sex, any age, any ethnicity. Yes, we would take a child if uh, we got a call from the hospital at night. That means that the mother has been tested positive for drugs and has chosen to relinquish her child to foster care rather than go to jail. Yes, we checked that box. We just checked every single box. So what is your reaction when you get that call? Because you've wanted and wanted and wanted and all of a sudden, and, and like you said, you, you, had, you had some letdowns. There was things that didn't come yeah. through. And then all of a sudden, you get this call and the funny thing is you're not prepared for it so i mean all of a sudden you you get a call and you're like okay 14 hours i mean what was your react what 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 went through your mind i think a panic that i've never known i'm a pretty calm person even though i'm hyper i don't get nervous performing i remember walking out presenting as i said at the academy awards and going oh this is awesome you know i don't feel uh, fear that way but I felt a, a coursing through my ba- I could hear my blood in my head <laughs> just right. it was really a feeling of I'm going to let this person down I can't I can't I don't even have a bed oh you know and and that feeling is what I would describe as parenthood you no longer matter Right, and it's funny because I think I believe Ian was working. Yes. So I mean, and I guess could imagine because you just want to call. You know, it's that thing you're like we're just waiting for, it, but you know you can't. That must have been led you. You must have been like walking up the wall, just going crazy because yes. he wasn't there to help you out because he couldn't be. Yes, I actually have said this to him that I don't envy him that he had even less time to prepare than I did. He was working. My husband works long hours. Sometimes he's filming, as you said, until 11 p.m. And I didn't want to call him in the middle of work right. and say you're a dad. <laughs> you know, so we got the call at night. So I 
said, because I had said to the social workers when they called, I said, when is she coming? And they said, tomorrow. And I had so much time by myself. I had two hours to process it and digest that this house was going to change <laughs> tomorrow. Right. With Ian, I texted him and I said, um, can you call me after? And he called right away and said, um, hey, we're done. Are you going to meet the cast for a drink? And I said, which I did often because, you know, when you don't have kids, you can walk out the door right. at any time. <laughs> and uh, I, t- I told him what had happened. You know, the little girl that we had met had been legally emancipated, which means that her parental rights were terminated. That means meant that she was going to be placed with us. It's called fostering, but that meant when she was placed with us, unless we messed up, that we got to adopt her. Well, you said there was a six-month period. It's smart. And so it's just, I guess, because it's saying if they screw up, because you said there's a lot of visits. Yeah. Now, the visits, are they announced or unannounced? Unannounced. Okay, so you basically, they know if you're sitting there and they come over and there's a yeah. woohoo yeah. <laughs> party. It's good. It's good. I like the unannounced visits myself, maybe because I have a big family who would pop by at any time. Um, But I like it because it made us realize that the social workers were on our side. They want it to fit. They want it to work. And they don't want to show. So when it actually was rough, I called them and said, it's rough. She doesn't like us. She's mad. And I didn't feel that they were going to go, okay, we'll come get her. Right. They gave us resources. They came over. They helped. They gave us books, which you have no time to read <laughs> until right, later. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, but they sent us uh, to websites. Uh, one of them is sleepyplanet.com. This is a network of, again, they, one of the women used to work as a therapist for kids uh, and place, uh, help transition children from foster care. And they gave us such good advice, which was don't let her sleep in your bed. You can later, but they said, right now, just don't let her sleep in her bed. Let's establish her room as her safe sanctuary, and you are going to move into her room. So let's get you a cot. You put it by her bed, and you say to her, because our daughter would not sleep. I'm talking 20-second increments. Her eyes would close open, eyes closed. And you know how crazy we get when we haven't slept. Oh, yeah. Anyone who's flown to Europe knows you're a rat bastard when you get there. So, (laughs) right? So that's how it was. She was mad. So they said, put the cot beside her bed and uh, say to her, I'm going to be here. I'm, and I, so I brought my computer. I brought everything in there. I worked. I had writing deadlines that I had to meet. And I would put her to bed and say, no matter what, if you open your eyes, I or your dad will be here. We'll be here. And the 20-second increments turned into two minutes, turned into 20, turned into she'd sleep for an hour. She'd go through six bottles a night. So imagine how many diapers we were going through. Right, that's what you had said. I mean, because yeah. I was thinking, I don't know what a... a kid goes through a baby goes through not an infant goes through a night but six seems a lot it's a lot it's a lot but anything she wanted we gave her okay you want to watch tv okay you want you anything she wanted we let her do which meant hitting us punching us yelling screaming not sleeping sleeping anything she wanted so that she could see that we were not the enemy and then slowly we started to establish boundaries we, after she'd been sleeping for about six hours a night, she got to move the cot slowly out of the room. Now she's eight years old. She sleeps 10, 11 hours right. through the night. It's unbelievable. Well, what amazes me also is the patience you guys went through. Because in the book, how you say, you know, all of a sudden you're, you get hit in the mouth with a toy or you get, you get kicked. I mean, you know, as you get old, when you're a kid, you know, I mean, you grow up, you, you 
you rough house, you do that. But as an adult, you're just you're not used to that. And I mean, and just even if it's a little precious one you love, you still when you get kicked, there's something in your body that pisses you off. Yeah, I would I'd walk out of the room a lot, and that's when I would think I'm not equipped. Uh, my mom immediately came to visit. My dad came later, of course. My mom, when we had sent the email at night, my parents live in Canada, so it's two hours ahead, so I couldn't call them and freak them out. And my brother lives in Australia, and my two sisters live in Canada. So we thought, you know what? Let's just send an email saying this has happened. So, of course, we woke up. The, this is the day that she was coming. So we woke up the next morning to a million emails, phone calls, the family freaking out, and my mom <laughs> got on a plane immediately. My mom, when she arrived, unzipped two suitcases. I think she brought a pair of pants and a T-shirt because everything else was baked goods. <laughs> See, that's awesome, though. That's like that's so like tradition. It's like Joanne's Italian, and it's like when they all brunch at her place. I mean, I grew up a waspy family. You know, it was like brunch was like you know eggs. You know, like it was a big thing on Christmas Eve. Like we would have chipped beef on toast, and my mom would get grapefruit, and she'd cut the rim out, and make a little bond in it. That was a big thing. You go to brunch at her house, and, and it's like you sit there, and it's like. There's ham and there's lasagna. And before that, there's the cheese and the crackers and the olives. And I'm sitting there going, God, I'm glad I didn't grow up Italian or Greek. I would be so fat. Oh, my God. I love food. I remember someone told me about a recent Greek wedding that they said, I think the family's having um, they're having financial difficulties because they only had 200 people and they only served <laughs> one meat. <laughs> It's great. It's, it's, you got to love You just got to love food. I mean, it, it's something that, you know, it's just it's so good. It's just great. So you're sitting there. Yeah. We'll go back to your story because we get to talk about food. We could talk all day. Now I'm hungry. Yeah, see that? I know. <laughs> so you, um, now as your your daughter's getting older, mm -hmm. and now she's in the room by herself. Yeah. She's getting, she's getting more responsibility. Yeah. And you let her try, you, you, you really guide her to what she can, she can do. And what, if it's something bad, you may, it's what I get from the book was you make it across like it's not bad, but. Yes. We never tell her she's bad or in, in any way uh, we talk about choices and uh, it's very manipulative parenting it's like directing you know you give them two choices like do you want to take a bath now or do you want to take a bath later right. and the message is you're taking a bath right. right and they they love it kids are just like okay I'm going to take it now because that means I'll have more playtime later. Everything was about giving her choices. So she's grown up now to be a very confident little girl and really thinks she rules the roost, which is, that's fine. That's right. fine. And now, so it's so funny because you said about other mothers and how some of them, you, you have some groups you don't like. <laughs> I believe they call them the coven. Is it... <laughs> I encountered, I believe every woman out there will know what I'm talking about. I encounter, and men too, you'll know it. There is a group of women that we all know, and the only qualification for being in what I call the coven is a lifelong dissatisfaction with one's own, own achievements. These women cannot be happy for other women. It's that simple. Even if they have everything, which is a fabulous husband, nine kids, and a Lamborghini, they're not happy in some way. And those are the people that you just have to duck and cover. So I had a certain amount of women who, when the success of my Big Fat Creek Wedding happened, I was just an easy target. And I get it. I, you, some of them, some people who are reviewers are in the coven. Right. Yeah. And they can be some some people in the coven can have penises. I'm just saying a lifelong dissatisfaction. You will. I'm an easy target. 
Now, it's good to also, because in the fact that you have the cub and you also have the core. Yeah. Which now, that, that has to make you very happy that, you know, and I know two of the people in your core, mm-hmm. and they're wonderful people, but it must make it great because your success has escalated, and they're all successful in their own brand, but it must be great that they seem like they don't try to get anything from you, and that must make you feel great that they're really true, true friends. It's very strange how I'm constantly asking members of the core, do you want a signed poster for from Tom Hanks for your charity? Do you want, Do you? is there some, and they there, it's just this amazingly well-raised group of friends who are, they're just good, solid people. And yes, two of the members of the core that you know, Rose Abdu and John Matta, were immediately in it, you know, with, with our daughter. They just, the whole core just came into it just being like, okay, there's a little person here. Okay. Um, and just helped us constantly. I remember being really desperate that I needed there was a half hour period between me leaving and Ian coming home and our friend Susie Nakamura called and said I'll come over. Susie's been on the show. She's great. She's She's a really sweetheart. Susie's in the core. Yeah. So okay. See I know more in the core John. See I know the core. Mm -hmm. Just real quick about the core. Is John the one who walked in the pool with his clothes on? Yes. To make our daughter laugh one time John Matta walked into the pool with his clothes on pretending (laughs) that he didn't see the pool. He was like hello everybody and walked right into the pool. To this day if you do that in our house it's got. I mean, at our pool, it's called the John Matta. That's funny. So, so what made you decide to write a book? Because you, you know, you've done. You work a lot. You, you act. You direct. You took time away, and then <clears throat> you do do a lot of screenwriting. And what made you decide to sit there and go, you know what, I want to write this book? Because writing a book is really a screenplay. You just write. It. I mean, even like Big Fat Greek Wedding, you're not really bearing your soul. This is you're really bearing your soul. And if, and I think if you got a bad review. It, it would hurt more and it's, it doesn't I don't know if that makes sense but it's it's your life and if someone's saying oh this is crap it, it, it would hurt a lot so what made you decide okay this is what I'm going to do I'm going to is it the message for the adoption or you just you know I just got to tell all my stories because it's also it's also um, great for people who have been turned down in the business there's many different facets where it's very encouraging thank you I think that's what the overall goal is I wanted to write something that just tells people who are like me, someone who doesn't fit in, fit into a mold. I'm, I'm finding out, I've been on the book tour now, it's a, it's a New York Times bestseller and it continues to stay on the list because of people like you who put me out there. It's available, as you know, on Amazon and Barnes & Noble because HarperCollins has been so supportive of just continually getting it out there. And why? Because there's so much, so many people in this world who are just going to tell you no. And I think if we're going to get away from the cookie cutter movies and stories that we have out there. We have to encourage us weirdos to keep talking because you will hear you don't belong 10 times more than you'll hear welcome. So I wanted to just write this story that said, hey, just when, you you know me, you know that girl that it looked like everything was perfect? Guess what was actually happening? And then it turned out to be the greatest thing of all. So that's why I wanted to write it. And yeah, you're right. It's it's not really anything except for a book about encouragement. That's great. And now the, the um now does your daughter know your stardom now? Because now in the book, it, it it's wasn't she knew you know you sing and dance you know <laughs> singing does does she know it? Does she see does she see you on TV? Because I know at one point we said you saw the. Uh, the videos at the store you didn't want her to really you know, yeah. think it was she, you she saw the box well actually when I became a parent it was um, 
at the height of post-production of my Life in Ruins. I'd already filmed that movie, and I Hate Valentine's Day, which I had written and directed and acted in. So imagine how busy I was, and at the same time, transitioning this child. Thank God I get to work from home. So, like, give notes and edit and whatever. So um, then the movie comes out as my daughter is acclimating to our world I met these premieres she doesn't know where I'm going because we never lie I just don't believe that kids should know about all this stuff I don't. and you also said it's very there's so much stuff going on in the premiere that's not what a kid should have to deal with they should never ever hear a throng of photographers yelling Nia 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 like even my mom can't stop laughing when she hears it it's a heady thing so um, no to answer your question our daughter has never seen our movies uh, or TV shows still it was a conscious choice on our part to help her keep her identity intact. This is not her new life. It's her life, a continuation. She lives somewhere else. She had other parents, and now we are her parents. She's the same person. So we wanted to help her form her identity. It would have been very weird for her to see a movie where I'm kissing John Corbett, and her own dad plays John Corbett's best friend. Right. It's weird. So um, that was a choice. But then it's her choice. Now she doesn't want to see any of our movies. My movies are Ian's things because she hears that we kiss other people. Okay. <laughs> now... <laughs> How did she acclimate to uh, having to take the cat makeup off when she went out in public? Was she bummed or she just got older? That was the thing that we would do where we would put her in cat makeup so that paparazzi wouldn't get a picture of her, you know, a clear shot. Um, she feels now quite empowered. There is a law as of January 1st to Halle Berry and Jennifer Garner. I've been helping Halle pull it together. Halle's done it all financially, but um, just to help to get the word out. It's against the law now for paparazzi to lay in wait and stalk and harass a child. So if I'm at the Grove and they jump out at us like they do, and I say, you are scaring my child, they can go to jail. See, that's awesome. Because, I mean, you, you, made, you said there's a difference between people who want to take a picture and the paparazzi. And it's true. I mean, people who want to take a picture and, you know, you've said, you know, you... It goes with my job. Yeah. I get it. It's fine. Sometimes it's a little bit flattering. So it's fine. You know, when someone chases after you and you're coming out of the gym, you got to deal with it. I know. But um, not a child. Off limits. So that's good, y'all. It's good. See, so you're, so you're, 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 and people are getting to know that now. And so I think, like anything, if people sit there and see someone doing that, they can go, hey, hey, you know, like if I saw someone taking a picture of someone's kid now, the paparazzi, I go, hey, you know, that's against the law. You know what you can do? If you see a paparazzi harassing an actor with a child, take out your camera and film it, and that guy will go to jail. Oh really? Okay, it's so ama- that's our best. I won't. I won't get in trouble. No. Look away. Wait, you're taking a picture of a guy taking yeah, a picture of a no, kid. I'm like, just, no, I'm trying to help yeah, out. Yeah, just take out your phone. It's all good. We had a deal actually. We rented a beach house for the summer, and we had a deal with the paparazzi out there that they could take a picture of Ian and me in any pose, whatever. Just our kid was off, was off limits, and they were cool with that. They we shook hands on it, and they did it all summer. See, that's awesome. So now we have a few minutes left. What's coming up for you? I have a deal with Paramount. I'm writing a movie called Leftovers. Uh, it's about. Uh, it's an anti-romantic comedy. It's a movie making. Fun one of all my other movies that I've ever written. Now, how did that was that was that? Do you love doing that just because it's something different and it's just so you can get that evil side going? Yeah, I love to make fun of myself, and believe me, I can't believe that it's my career to stand on a cliff and kiss a guy way out of my league. Right, you know, I do it for all of us ladies. <laughs> and so, uh, and we just saw you also in that movie. What was it called? Oh, for a good time call. Yes, we because we were flipping around because we 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 were reading the book and then all of a sudden I'm flipping around. What are we going to watch? And I was on HBO and I go, "Hey, wait a second. She goes, "I go." She goes, "That's that that's that movie." So we watched it the other night. Yes, I love that movie written by two women. Fantastic. It was a great experience. And then I did two movies this summer: uh, Helicopter Mom and uh, Car Dogs. 
Okay. Now, do you have a website? How can people more find out about the book or the adoption? The best way to find me is on Twitter, at Nia Vardalis. So it's um, just simple. And then on Facebook, I have a Facebook page. There's a lot of fake ones, but the one that says Nia Vardalis author is the real one. Okay. No, so, but I sent it to the right one. That's right. Okay. I was Because I always do. I sent her a letter, and it's just she got back to me. I was, was so was surprised. Cool. that. Well, I, I didn't know, and I said to John, I said, you know, because it happened with Kate Flannery, too. I just sent Kate. They said, you should send Kate a letter. And I said, all right. And then I said, I was like, they said, well, she might respond. So I just said, you know what? And I sent you a letter. And you responded. Yeah. And it was very cool. And by the way, Kate's in the core. Okay. You Damn, I'm, I'm knowing the core. You're core adjacent. Dude, the Cooper talk is the, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm the I'm the radio show of the core. That's going to be my new thing. I'm going to get you a sign right here that says <laughs> core friendly. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on. And uh, and the book is called? Instant Mom. Now, how'd you come up with the little the, the doll on the cover? Was that just a great idea you had? I just thought it would be kind of funny that it was like uh, how instantly it happened because the core brought over half those things you see on okay. the cover. The, you, need, you need everything. You need, uh, you need a rolling pin. <laughs> you need a stroller and you definitely need your lipstick ladies well i want to thank you for coming on and the people go follow her on twitter also follow me on twitter at cooper talk also go to my website coopertalk.net i have about 225 episodes up send me an email at cooper at indie100.com also if you have an android phone go to the google play store type in cooper talk and you can get my app and on iphones this is a little long and complicated but go to coopertalk.podbean.com forward slash mobile forward slash also uh comedy show I don't know. I'm Saturday, February 8th. I'll be at Sal's Comedy Hall in Hollywood. And the 22nd and 23rd, I'll be at JR's Comedy Club out in Valencia. So come on out and go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Cooper Talk is also one word. as you, That's my running thing. And you can find past episodes on that. So I want to thank you for listening. Um, do me a favor. Drink your water. Eat your vegetables and take your vitamins. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. You guys have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.